0: Okay, so, good evening, everybody. Good evening. Yes, good evening. Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, I hope you're more energetic than that good evening, but go ahead and take them out and turn to the book of Romans, chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. So we are right in the thick of it. As we look at these scriptures, the book of Romans, last week, or yeah, last week it was just really, uh, for me, challenging to really get a hold of of the grasp of the scriptures and to be able to kind of convey the best I could what the Apostle Paul was trying to share with us. And uh, we're, we're in a section where he's dealing with sovereignty. So, uh, just to remind you, we've been, as we look at the book of Romans, we're really looking at uh, Paul's, the Apostle Paul's discourse on salvation. And uh, we have themed the book of Romans grace, just simply the word grace, because that's what he keeps trying to drive home that salvation is all about what God has done and our acceptance of it. And not what we do. And so he starts off, the first section, he starts off talking about what? Sin. Yes. Starts off talking about sin. And so we get a really good understanding about sin. And that's it's important for us to understand that. And then he goes on and talks about salvation. As he, as he talks about salvation, he makes the big point that because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, then our salvation is a righteousness that comes from God and not from ourselves. So we need a righteousness that is accounted to us or put in our account. We need a righteousness that is given to us because we can't earn it or merit it, or do anything to grasp it or get it. So He has to do that. And the way that we access the salvation that's provided by God is by faith in Him, and is by faith that we are saved, by faith in what Jesus has done. So then He goes on and talks about what we do after we're saved, and how we live our life, and... Um, The word that we use for that is sanctification. Sanctification is a process of a believer as they grow in God and in their relationship with God. And then now we're in a section, um, verses 9 through 11, where he's talking about sovereignty. So that just basically means that God is in control. Now, to be able to understand sovereignty and God's control, and how God is working out all things together for good, to know and understand that God has a plan, and He's been working out that plan, and His plan is exactly on schedule. And so, to be able to apply the doctrine of God's sovereignty is to be able to look at life and look at this world and understand that God is in control. That what is happening in the world is completely contributing to the plan of God and bringing about his full completion of his plan of salvation. So, we're going to continue with that discussion of God's sovereignty in chapter 10 of the book of Romans. And just it, it, sometimes when you get into uh, these section, uh, this section of Scripture, you can get lost in the woods and forget about what the whole big point of this section of Scripture is. So chapters 9, 10, 11, is, just remember, it's about God's sovereignty. And the way that God shows us He is sovereign, the way He proves His point to us, is to go all the way back to the book of Genesis, chapter 12, verse 3. And I'm going to go there for a second. I'm going to read that to you so we can kind of get an understanding of what Paul is, is doing. But to understand God's sovereignty is to look at Israel, the nation of Israel, and the people of Israel. Why is that? Because of a lot of things, but specifically Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 3 or 4. 1 through 3. So, God made a promise. He made it to a certain man called Abraham, who he called or elected to be one who would be an instrument to the whole world, to bring blessings to the whole world. So that's why it's important for us to have an understanding of the nation of Israel and the people of Israel, the Jews. Because God's purpose and His plan starts and ends with the Jewish people. So let me read you this promise given to Abraham, who God has called to be a blessing to all nations. So here's what he tells Abraham. He says, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So that's called the Abrahamic covenant, a covenant that God made with Abraham. So that covenant then is a way that we can look at how God works and to know if God is first and foremost able to perform the things that he says and promises that he's going to do. So that's a big, a big thing. Does God have enough power to fulfill that promise? The promise that from Abraham, that there would be a certain land that they, the certain people would be in, the people of Abraham, the descendants of Abraham, that they would have a land. And in that land, that they would be known to all the people in the world and that they would be a blessing to all the people. So God, for Him to be the God of the Bible and the God that we can trust, He would have to be able to fulfill that, to accomplish that. Now, the only way that that could be accomplished is if God did it. The only way to fulfill that promise would be that it wouldn't be up to Abraham and his ability and skill and power, and then after Abraham, the nation of Israel's skill and power and strength, because God chose Abraham because of the weakness of the people that would come through him the Jews and the nation of Israel he chose them so that we would know that it's not of them but it's of God so you think about the nation of Israel as we sit today one that there is a nation of Israel that's a miracle did you know that two that there are Jewish people that exist. Did you know that's a miracle? Do you know the contemporaries of the Jewish people? There's, they don't exist anymore. Those Perizzites and Canaanites and Jebusites and all those type of people who are contemporaries of the Jewish people, they don't exist anymore. Just the Jewish people exist. That's a miracle. Did you know that the Hebrew language was dead for almost 2,000 years and then revived again? Do you know there's nothing like that has ever happened in the history of the world? Did you know the Jewish people have been deported from their land and their land destroyed and conquered? through the Babylonians. And then after, after seven years, they went back. And then later, the Romans conquered their land, destroyed their temple, and sent them around the whole world so they didn't have a land and they didn't have a, a place for them for 2,000 years. And then they came back. Before that, they were in slavery for 400 years, and God delivered them from slavery and they didn't have anything they didn't have weapons to defend themselves they didn't have property other than what god was going to give them they didn't have food they didn't have clothing that would last and yet god sustained them it's just just a truly mind-blowing miracle to look at the jewish people but why is that happening it's because of genesis chapter 12 verse Verses 1 through 3. It's because God made a promise. So what happens if God makes a promise? It happens. God's promise is as good as gold. And even though it may not look like it's possible that it it could even happen, and that's actually what happened in Christianity in those 2,000 years where Israel did not have a land. Think of 2,000 years. Didn't have a land. And they lived all, in all different parts of the world. And many of those who are Bible scholars, they believed that there must have been a different interpretation of the Bible in that it, it must be that the church actually takes the place of the Jewish people. So as you, you read about Israel and you read about this nation, and they're just, for 2,000 years, they're just wiped out and they're spread across the world. It, it just, this, the, the interpreters of the scripture looked at culture, which is a bad hermeneutic, which is, means a way of interpreting the Bible. They looked at culture and said, the Bible, it can't mean that Israel is going to have a land. And those scriptures that talk about Israel having a land, it, now, it must be that the church now has taken their place. Until May 14th, 1948, when Israel actually came back into the land, just as God said, just as God promised. One of the greatest, most astounding miracles and fulfilled promises that's ever been seen on planet earth and as they occupied and got back into the land they had to fight for their land and God miraculously um, used miracles to get them to be able to protect their land and to stay in the land and now Israel the, the land of Israel is very small but yet is one of the strongest nations economically in the whole world. The nation of Israel is surrounded by enemies that hate them and want to annihilate them. And yet we can say that that'll never happen again. Now that they're back in the land, there's a reason they're back in the land. Because God still has... Promises to fulfill and complete in the future. And in order for those promises to happen, Israel has to be back in the land again. So we live in a time where we're able to see God's promises fulfilled in the past historically to give us confidence about the word of God and the future promises that God gives to us. So as we look at these scriptures, we want to sort of peel back some of those things as we look at God's promises to the nation of Israel as a testimony to God's faithfulness to us. So as we look at Israel, we can say, you know what, Lord, you're going to fulfill the promises that you have to the church. To individual Christians. To those promises that maybe some of you are standing on in the word of God. God is faithful. And let's look at these scriptures that testify to the faithfulness of God in regards to Israel. So, chapter 10. Brethren, the Apostle Paul says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So their zeal was so out of control, so not according to knowledge, that they actually killed the Messiah who came to save them. And that was prophesied that that would happen. So their their zeal, so zeal in and of itself is not necessarily a good thing. So you can be zealous. What does that mean? A good way to think about it is I'm fired up about something. Passionate about something. And that passion in and of itself has to be directed in the truth. Now when you have zeal and you have truth, now you have what God is looking for. And when you know God personally... When you have a relationship with God, there's going to be zeal there. There's going to be passion there. Because to know God is to be excited about the things of God, to be excited about His Word, to be excited about fellowshipping with God's people, to be passionate about building up the kingdom of God and the church of God and all those kind of things. And when we have zeal for God, we have the Holy Spirit working through our surrendered lives to do great things for Him. But the nation of Israel in general, and mind you, mind you that there were Jewish people that were saved. Paul was one of those who's writing this. So when he's talking about the Jews, he's talking about as a whole, the Jewish nation, instead of accepting. Jesus as their Messiah, they rejected him as their Messiah. But there were individual Jews like the Apostle Paul, like the disciples who were Jewish. But generally, the Jewish people rejected Christ as their Messiah. So he says, My desire is for them to be saved. That's my heart. That's my desire. He says that in verse 3, that they being ignorant of God's righteousness. That's a a term that we've been seeing that we want to really focus in on righteousness. Righteousness, another way that we've seen in the book of Romans that is uh, describing what the Apostle Paul is saying here is he, he calls it righteous requirements. So if I were to ask you, what would be the requirements for one to get into heaven. And that would be sort of a a way for someone to think about, well, what do I need to do or how good do I need to be? Generally, that's what people think. How good do I need to be to be righteous to get in? And so these righteous requirements is what Paul is trying to get us and especially the Jews to understand that the righteous requirements that they would look at would be the righteous requirements given in the laws, L-A-W-S, of God. And so the laws of God that we find in the Old Testament are ways for us to understand that God has moral, M-O-R-A-L, requirements. And those moral requirements are 100% perfection. So in order to be right with God, one has to be perfect morally. And not just in outward action, but in thoughts, and in speech, and in intentions, and in motivations. So you see what Paul's getting at. He's getting at the fact that it's impossible to be right with God as a human being in that way. But the Jewish people would, would think, well, we're Jewish, we're God's chosen people, we're descendants of Abraham, so we're good. Paul's saying, no, you're not, because you're not true descendants of Abraham just because your genealogy and your 23 Me test has shown that you're Jewish because there's a a spiritual Jew. And that's all who believe in the Messiah, in Jesus Christ, that they would actually be a true Jew, spiritually. Maybe not genetically. Maybe not in your DNA, but in your spiritual DNA, that's what God was always hinting at and pointing to, even in the Old Testament, Even with Abraham, because it was said about Abraham, he believed in God. And because of his belief in God, it was accounted to him as righteousness. So it was always by faith and not by works. But the Jewish people had a hard time because they had been so entrenched in a religious system. And so if we took a a pause for a second and say, okay, Well, let's take the Jewish religion off the table for a second. For many people, for them to realize that what they have been trusting in or counting on, whether it's a religious thing or whether it's thinking that God loves them no matter what, thinking that They can do enough good things, or they're a good person. All of those things are, are ways that people see themselves. They identify themselves that way. They live their life that way. Like the Jews, for the teaching of Paul and for them to accept it, they would have to leave all that and realize that their whole life and all that they believed in and trusted in was wrong. So you may encounter people like that you share the gospel with, you share God's word with, and they will be confronted with the reality that what you have trusted in or believed in is all wrong. And you must leave that to follow Jesus because He is the way and the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by Him. And all of you here who are saved, you had to leave some system or some thought or some belief that you had that was wrong. But see, Jesus came to set us free and not keep us in a lifestyle of lies, But it's hard. That's the point. It's hard. It was hard for the Jewish people to face the fact that their whole religion could not save them, could not give them eternal life. And Paul was trying to express that to them, that even though they were Jewish, even though they were descendants of Abraham, that they must receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior because only He has made the provision for their sin. So verse 3 again, it says um, in that context, he says, For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law. For the righteous, uh, righteousness To everyone who believes. So, that right there, you might want to highlight that or circle that because that sums up everything that we need to know about going to heaven. Christ is the end of the law. In other words, Christ is the end of our own good works in order to be accepted by God. He's saying that doesn't work. He's pointed out before that there is no one righteous. And even, there, even that there may be people that are more moral than other people, they're just moral sinners. They're not forgiven and their sins are not washed away. This is the point that he's making. No matter how religious one is, they're just religious sinners. Our sins must be washed away, and only Jesus can do that. So the law or these requirements that would show the heart of God and what's necessary for us to be right with God, they basically just demonstrated that our condition before God was such that we couldn't be right with God in and of ourselves; that we needed a Savior. And so Christ was that Savior. He is that Savior. He is the end of the law. And anyone who is in Christ now has been given His righteousness. And He took our unrighteousness on the cross. So, if you're in Christ, God the Father sees us as righteous, not because of anything in ourselves, but because we're in Christ. So, God the Father sees us as in Christ who is perfect. And Jesus was able to be that perfect sacrifice because he was sinless and then died on the cross in our place. He took our punishment. So that the invitation then goes out to everyone, and he makes this point not just to the Jewish person, but it goes out to everyone who had put their faith in him. And then he goes back to the Old Testament in verse 5. He says, For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. So Moses, the Ten Commandments. So Moses writes about the the law. And it says, Moses writes, the man who does those things shall live by them. What Paul is saying is, Moses, the recipient of the Ten Commandments, he wrote that the man who does the things of the law They shall live by them. In other words, every single second of every single day of your life, you have to perfectly live by the law. That's what Moses said. So just to remind you, what was the purpose of the law then? The law wasn't to make us right with God. The law was to show us that we could not be right with God on our own. And it pointed us to our need for a Savior. That's what the law did. In verse 6, he explains that. He says, but the righteousness of faith. So that's the difference. The righteousness that comes by the law. What's that? Us trying to do good things to be accepted by God. So that's one way. And then the other way is a righteousness that comes by faith. That sounds a lot better. Because a righteousness that comes by faith then is now putting our faith in Christ and in what he did, and not in what we do. And that goes all the way back to Abraham, the father of faith, the one who got this promise. So he says, quoting from the Old Testament in the book of Deuteronomy, he says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who will descend or go down into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, it's in your mouth and your heart, that is the word of faith which we preach. So what does that mean? He's quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, the Old Testament, fifth book of our Bibles, and he's saying, Moses said salvation is not this difficult thing to acquire. And he gives an example like going up and and pulling Christ down from heaven or going down and pulling Christ up from the abyss or from death. He's saying it's it's not like that. It's not difficult, basically, is what he says. It's not difficult because the Word of God is near us. The Word of God is innately in our heart. It's written on our heart. On our conscience. That every human being is made in the image of God. And because we are image bearers of God, we have eternity that's written on our heart. So we know instinctually that there's something beyond what we see, touch, touch, hear, feel, smell. Instinctually, we know there's something more. And not only that, we know from creation that someone had to create all the things that we see. And for one to reject that or deny that or fight against it, in, earlier in, in chapter 1 of the book of Romans, he, he describes that behavior as suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. So ignoring what instinctually we know in our heart, ignoring what we crave in our heart, ignoring what we desire in our heart, a connection with God, a relationship with God. And so he, he's saying it's not difficult to find God. It's all around you. And if you would just put your faith in Him, you would be saved. It's not through doing all these things Uh, making pilgrimages back to Israel or going through these religious ceremonies or signing up to go through these classes and get certain classifications and ordinations or whatever. It's simply by putting one's faith in Jesus Christ. And if you think about it, why would God make it difficult for someone I mean, things are difficult enough, and the Bible doesn't compare us to the most flattering things that can be known on Earth. It compares us to like sheep, things like that. Sheep are not known for their intelligence and their strength and their abilities. So God made it so e- He made it so easy. Children. They seem to know God. They seem to understand. You don't have to do a lot of apologetics training on a child. They, they seem to instinctually understand that there is something else. It's when we get older and suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because we want our own way. Because we want our own thing. That's... The fallen part of us. The fallen part of us is that we're rebellious against God. So we have this sort of dual thing going on where we we are made in the image of God. We're image bearers of God that we're never satisfied until we are submitted to God and in a relationship with God. But yet there's this fallen nature of us that, loves sin and is rebellious against God. And so this is what Paul is trying to describe, is that this knowledge of God is something that is so easy for anybody, but yet the rejection of it is because of the exercising of our own will against God's will. So in verse 9, he says that if you confess with your mouth... So here's how you do it. This is so amazing. This is the answer of how to have eternity in heaven. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. So if you memorize that, or have that place saved in your Bible, you can tell anybody you want to know how to go to heaven. This is how. It's to believe in your heart. So why why does he make a distinction about where to believe? Why doesn't he say, if you believe in your head, or if you believe in your flesh, or whatever. He says believe in your heart because when the Bible refers to your heart, it's not referring to the cardiac muscle and this amazing organ that we have. It's talking about who we are, a real person. A real person is inside of us, inside of these bodies. It's unseen the real part of us uses these bodies to interact with the world. But the body is not who we are. It's the inner person. And so that's why he says to believe in our inner person that Jesus is Lord and was raised from the dead. So why does he say that? Because in order to be saved, we have to have a correct understanding of who God is so that we can believe in the correct person of Jesus Christ. Why is that necessary? Because there's all sorts of false Christs that won't save you. A Christ that one would think is just a prophet will not save you. A Christ that was born a human being and became God Will not save you, cannot save you. Only a Christ that is eternal, that was never created, instead was the creator of all things, that then at a point in time came into the world as a human being. He didn't start to exist at that point, he eternally existed. And then at a certain point, he came into the world and took on humanity. He added humanity to his deity. And then lived his life 100% God and 100% human, died on the cross for our sins, and then rose again from the dead to prove that he was God, that he had power over everything, sin and death, demons, sickness and disease, wind and waves. He demonstrated he had power over everything, demonstrating that he is omniscient, all-powerful, which is only an uncreated God can be. So that's what we believe in. That's what the scriptures say. So we believe in him, but then we do that in our inner person, and that belief in him means that we're trusting in him for our salvation. It's not just I believe he did certain things because the Bible says even Satan and the demons believe and they're even afraid of him. So it's not just an intellectual belief. For example, you're sitting in these chairs so you just didn't look at the chair and intellectually say, well, that's a chair. But there came a point where you had to trust the chair enough to sit in it and hold you and do its job. So that's where, that's where you put your trust, and that's what this is talking about. You believe in it, so you're resting in it. You're trusting in it. And when you're trusting in it, that means you're not trusting in anything else. Because some people make that mistake of trusting in their works, what they do, and trusting in Christ and what He has done. And that's not right either. And we'll see that in a little bit. So again, in verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that the Lord Jesus, and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, that's God the Father, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes unto righteousness. So it's our belief that makes us righteous. The righteousness that is required by God. And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. So that that means that our faith takes root in our heart and then is demonstrated... By what we say. We had a baptism recently. We actually had two baptisms recently. We had a baptism the week after the baptism, right? So, those who are getting baptized, they believed in their heart, and they confessed their beliefs so everybody else knew their beliefs, and then they demonstrated and showed people through their baptisms. But... To confess is to acknowledge that one has received Christ as their Savior. In verse 11 it says, For the Scripture says, and notice how much of this is based on Scripture. Notice how much quoting from the Old Testament. Why is that? It's because our whole Bible all fits together in one piece. It's because Paul's not making these things up. It's because this is not something new that just happened when Paul has come on the scene. And God has done it this way so that we know it's true because He's had the same message through all mankind, the history of mankind, through different people, through different eras, Through different places to show that this is all the Word of God is seamless in its message. And this is the message. And it's seamless, and God's demonstrating it going all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. This, This is what happened. You remember when all the families of the earth will be blessed? Well, how does that happen? Well, it's because the Messiah, Jesus, Came through Abraham's line and was Jewish and came as a Jew, as the Messiah, and he died so all who believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. The greatest blessing to all of mankind is that they can be saved. Anybody, a Jew, a non Jew, male, female, slave, throughout the whole world, people are saved. And it doesn't matter. Anybody, this is one message for all mankind. All can be saved. And this is the only message for all mankind. It's only through Christ. Verse 11, for Scripture says, whoever believes on Him would not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon Him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So you know, sometimes there's this thought or discussion that that Jesus is just for white people or Western civilization or it's just an American thing. And that's so dumb because the gospel started in the Middle East and it went to Africa. That was one of the first places the gospel went through the Ethiopian. And there are believers on every continent, every place in the whole world. It's not an ethnic thing here. It's saying that, it's specifically saying that this is the one message for all mankind. There's no distinction. There's no other way that other people get saved, not even the Jews. Sometimes people think, well, is there another way that Jewish people get saved? The whole point of Paul is saying, no, there's not. A Jewish person must receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior just like everybody else. There's one way. And again, Why would God make a whole bunch of different ways? He just made one way. Because remember, He made one way and He made it simple because He's not trying to trick us or fool us. He's not trying to play that game, that shell game. You know that shell game? Like street vendors do it and they have like a little ball and then three little shells and they mix it all around and you're trying to guess... Which one it's under the ball, and he seems to know, it like you never get it right. Or choose which one of these doors do you think the prize is behind? This is not a guessing game. There cannot be anything more plain and simple. We're reading it here tonight. So there's no mystery. It's just belief or not belief. That's all there is. There's rejection or accepting. That's all there is. There's nothing else. It's plain and simple, and God made it plain and simple. He made it obvious because He wishes that no one would perish, but all would have eternal life. So imagine going for your PhD in theology at, say, Dallas Baptist University. And they just have One answer on the test, not multiple choice, not multiple questions. And the answer, you take the test and it's just Jesus, true or false. And that's it. And if you pick the right answer, true, you're in. You have your PhD in divinity. There's nothing more. There's no more degree. You've, you've achieved everything by believing in Jesus Christ. So you, do you see how, how God He loves us so much? He doesn't make it complicated. He doesn't hide it. You know who does that? We do that. We make it complicated. We hide it. Why do we do that? Because it's hard to face the reality of it. It's hard to face the truth of it. But at the same time, it's the truth that sets us free. So, in verse 14, he says, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? Speaking about the Jewish people, what is Paul doing here? He's addressing the fact, for those of you who are here during the book of Acts, you realize and see, Paul was all over the place, the Apostle Paul. He was going everywhere. And what was he doing? He was sharing the gospel. He was sharing this with people. And his travels were extensive, and he'd go to these place to, by place by place. And oftentimes the Jewish people, they would run him out. They'd say, get out of here. And they'd throw rocks at him. They'd stone him. They'd try to kill him, and he would be on the run. And so he's addressing that. And he's saying, well, what do you expect me to do? I have this message. And this is the message of eternal life. So how can those who don't know about him, how can they call on him? The one in whom they have not believed in. And how shall they believe in Him of whom they had not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, again, quoting the Old Testament, how beautiful are the feet Of those who preach the gospel of peace. Who bring glad tidings of good things. He's saying that's why I did what I did. You talk about a pedicure. You want to have beautiful feet. Here's a spiritual pedicure. Use your feet to go and share the gospel and your feet will be beautiful. He's saying, this is an amazing calling that someone would use. And we'll expand that a little bit beyond feet that someone would use their energy and their effort to go and share this message with people. And he's telling them, this is what I was doing. I, I, and the, the Old Testament just specifies how beautiful it is if someone goes and tells this message. And what a better message to have, share with people that you care about is this message of salvation and to present it to people in hopes that they would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. How powerful is that? that you have the words of eternal life. Have you ever thought about that? You, if you are saved, you have the words of eternal life. That God can use you to be the difference between someone going to heaven or hell. And it's your words, actually His words that He's entrusted to you and to me, That has the ability to set people free. That is amazing. Do you know why our history of Christianity is so rich in people that have been so willing to go anywhere, anytime, to share this? Message. And many of those, occurrence has, uh, those occurrences have ended up in those people dying for their faith. Think about how beautiful those feet are that have given their lives so that one person can change their eternal destiny from hell to heaven. Would that be worth it to you? If God would use your whole life so that one person would be saved from hell because of the message that you have? Something to think about. But this is our history. And it's unfortunate that oftentimes the way Christians are viewed and churches are viewed is in a completely different light than that. Because in many cases, the Western culture church is looking more like the world than it is like the truth. And because of the emphasis on being cool and relevant and packing pews and filling buckets with money to build bigger, cooler things. This has been lost. But not everywhere. Do you realize that you and I have brothers and sisters now across the world that are dying for their faith? I just heard a story about a college student in Nigeria, a young lady. And she was Muslim. And she was on WhatsApp and some kind of group text with her classmates who were Muslim. And she mentioned, after getting a good grade on her tests, how Jesus helped her and blessed her. And then she began to get backlash from the students. And that began to escalate, and she wouldn't back down from her profession of faith to the extent where she was killed by those fellow students because of her faith. So let's not forget, as these type of things for us in our culture have given us oftentimes a a completely incorrect, inaccurate inaccurate view of our faith in Christ. And it's when we understand the implications and the ramifications of the gospel. And that if you are a believer, that you have the words that can affect a person's eternal destiny. Imagine being in heaven and and having someone come up to you and saying, thank you for sharing that with me. I am here because you shared that with me. I am thankful for the individual that's one of my best friends that shared the gospel with me when I was 16 years old. And I owe him a debt of gratitude for not being ashamed of the gospel in a public school setting not being afraid to share it with me. Because my eternity is secure because God used him to share the gospel with me. And so Paul is here, he's setting that all-important realization of the truth of the gospel and how it's not simply about just repeatedly sitting in a pew week in and week out. But we do that, we accumulate the word so that the word would be that which would drive us to share the word with other people. And I believe now, in our culture, in our time, it's the perfect time to do that. Because the Bible says where sin abounds, would you say that's a good description of our culture? Grace abounds much more. So share the gospel. Let your feet go and be beautiful as it shares the gospel of peace. And notice, isn't it interesting, it's the gospel of peace. Because the ideologies of our time are robbing people of any sort of peace that one can have. And that's why we see the suicide numbers increasing, skyrocketing. The antidepressant uh, consumption is skyrocketing. Alcoholism, drug, it's just all skyrocketing. Why? It's because of lack of peace. It's because people need Jesus. So in verse 16 it says, But they all have not obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, again quoting from the Old Testament, everything that's going on, he's saying, is all part of God's plan. Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Do you know that's why we do this here? Another thing that I think happens is people are, are looking for, oftentimes, to go to church and go to a service and they're looking for that one message that's going to be like, people say this, you hit it out of the park. And a lot of times they'll tell a the pastor that because it's it's sort of a, this idea of you performed really well. And and I know sometimes people say that well-meaning. But I think it gives the wrong idea. I don't think pastors are are meant to Constantly have zingers. These lightning bolts that in 30 minutes you're going to be lightning bolted into sanctification. But I do believe it's accumulation. It's accumulating the word of God over time. And that's why it's important to be grounded in the word. That's why in Psalm 1.1 it says that we're blessed if we meditate on the Word day and night. It's an accumulation. It's not, okay, let's go in and see if the the pastor can give a one-liner. And a lot of times pastors are stealing their messages from other pastors because they've hired companies to write up to ghostwrite. Their messages. So they hire companies to ghostwrite their messages. And they're ghostwriting it in a way that is sort of like a company would do research on the culture to find out what people like. So then they can present it in a way that people like. And so they'll use the slang of the culture, the buzzwords of the culture, They'll have emotional appeals woven in there. It'll be all really um, condensed in a way where it's just taking a lot of the the fluffy stuff uh, out or the explanation stuff out, I should say. But what happened was recently there were two pastors that were one was a president and one was the past president of the Southern Baptist Convention, and they're using personal stories about things that happened to them, but they're the same exact stories. And they got caught. But see, that's going on everywhere. So that the the pastor doesn't need to spend time praying and agonizing over the Word of God. They just hire a company to do that, And those messages are geared not to call people to repentance, but to call them to sit in the pew and pay money to the tithe and offering so they can build more stuff. And that's wrong. And you know where that's headed, don't you? This is happening now. AI is writing sermons. Artificial intelligence is writing sermons. Pastors are using... AI, in many cases, to write their sermons for them. You know where that's going, don't you? That's going into the Antichrist stuff. That's going into, they're going to create their own book. AI is going to create their own Bible that's going to mix in all these other things. This is heavy. So I'm belaboring this point because it's serious and it's important. And if you don't know the truth and you're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, the Bible says that God will give you over to believe the lie. So remember, there's just true or false. Believe or not believe. And if you don't believe, then you've believed the lie. You've been deceived. So in verse 18, But I say... Have they not heard? Yes, indeed, their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world, meaning that the Jewish people have heard. And let them be an example, guys and gals. Their rejection of Christ ended up in their destruction. Verse 19, but I say, did Israel not know? First, Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not of a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. So what that means is because of the nation of Israel and their rejection of Jesus as their Messiah then now God is using the Gentiles or non-Jews and how God is blessing the church now to bring Israel and provoke them into jealousy, meaning that there are many Jews. And by the way, when the Jews came back to Israel, there were 23 believers, Jewish believers in Israel, 23 Now, since 1948, there's 30,000. Still a small percentage, but we're seeing the beginnings of what God is saying here. That eventually the nation of Israel will receive Jesus as their Messiah, but we're seeing this work begin to happen, and much of it is happening because of believers who aren't Jews And how God is working in and through their life, and they're seeing that, and they're saying, wow, there's something different about them. Why is God blessing them, and why do they have so much peace and joy? And it's because of Jesus. So in verse 20, it says, but Isaiah is very bold, and he says, I was found by those who did not seek me, meaning non-Jews. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long, I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And so that's the history of Israel. And we can see how on one hand, God is working in and through the nation of Israel and preserving Israel and how that is a testimony of God's faithfulness but we can also see here that when one rejects what God has done and is doing it can only lead to destruction and this is why tonight here one God is reaching His hands out and stretching His hands out. He already did on the cross. And He's saying, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Come to me. I'm what you're missing. I'm what you need. I'm what you're sensing that you need to come to. And then in another sense... It's the importance of us who do know God and are walking with Him to make it our life to share the gospel of peace with all those who will listen. In whatever the Lord may lead us to do, there's nothing more important than that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for this night. I thank You, Lord, for all of those who have come and have taken their time to sit and have, their words on, have Your words on their laps and seek You with their hearts. I, I thank You, Lord, for those who are saved. I thank You for bringing all of us out of darkness into the light. And I pray for anybody else that may be listening, anybody that's here, listening online, or maybe will listen to this later at some point, that they would take these words to heart. These words are true. These words are not any more hidden to us. These words are so relevant to this day and age. And I know that by the power of your Spirit, you're working in hearts, stirring hearts with your word. I pray that we would respond to it, whatever that may be, Lord. And so we thank you for tonight. May you be glorified in and through our lives and in this church body. We pray this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great night. And Lord willing, we'll see you on Sunday.